AVXL episode 204 was recorded on March 18th, 2023. A free 55-inch 4K HDR TV, YouTube fails NBA playoffs, Sonos dropping Android ultra throw screens you can trust, and so much more. Don't forget to email ask at AVXL if you got a question for us, and thank you. Seriously, thank you. Thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash AVXL. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Well, Navy Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. I just got to say this. I do not know why, but ultra short throw. Short. Something about ultra and short said quickly together causes my tongue to fail. Ultra short. <laughs> UST, baby. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we'll talk about ultra short throw screens in a couple minutes, but yeah, I won't. We're a family-friendly podcast here, so I won't use the word in the title on this one. But YouTube had difficulties streaming uh, the NBA game. Celtics versus Heat this week, TNT. What happened? Because you don't type things like that in titles. So this was obviously a massive, massive failure on youtube's part i am judging this based solely upon the response within the subreddit for youtube tv Uh on reddit so (laughs) there's enthusiasm there (laughs) if you peruse that subreddit right now you will see many people complaining about buffering freezing stuttering of the playoff game last night uh, as it was streamed through their service on tnt particularly in the later quarters there were a lot of complaints. It's multiple threads, multiple complaints. And oh. this is just a good reminder that I do love streaming live TV, but it is wholly dependent upon the network and the internet in general. And TNT is one of those channels that is not available over the air, so to speak. So you are mm. stuck with some sort of paid service of some kind to view that content. Uh, this is not something you can simply slap up an antenna and get around it. If you are wholly dependent upon the internet for providing your television needs and desires for live streaming, it's that part, but then it's also the service itself. In this case, YouTube TV being able to either provide enough bandwidth for that content, or it would be good to know if on the back end they were aware of it and they could also post something down the line to say, hey, here's what happened exactly. Here's how we plan to resolve it in the future. Or was it isolated to certain regions of the United States. Uh, I unfortunately did not watch the game last cable night. Cable operators that find streaming to be a pesky alternative to paying for cable in the home. You um, know, maybe. Uh, yeah. Oh, wouldn't that be something if it was actually I, your I mean, internet would, provider, you know, foo-fooing with the stream itself to make another competitor service look bad. I kind of uh, doubt that's the case. That would be pretty I insane. I doubt it too, but there was some of the stuff that happened with Netflix a few years ago, you know, where we, we aren't gating bandwidth. We've just given this internet website a finite cap. Like, and this is, I, I shouldn't actually stir this particular pot, but no, you know, but... it is a point that, you know, people think of like the, the internet as being this infinitely reconfigurable device that was designed to survive thermonuclear war. And then the reality is, is most connections between point A and point B, point A being a server that's streaming video and point B being your house, is most of the, the traffic on that route is 
essentially hard-coded, the map is written down. And if the map sucks or if something breaks or some server between point A and point B is having issues, it will really screw up your experience at the receiving end. So I will say if anybody was impacted by this, call YouTube, call your local internet provider, and, you know, especially oh. if it's a regular thing. So yeah. good luck getting through to anybody who's going to do anything about it. Anyway, if you happen to have <laughs> viewed dream. this game last night and you had a stuttering or buffering issue, I'd love to know. Uh, drop us a quick note if you could. The good folks at uh, ask at avxl.com. Or uh, if you had no issues whatsoever and you were using YouTube TV service, either in HD 1080p service or their more advanced 4K service. I would like to know that as well. I'd like to know if it was a uh, if this was something widespread or not, and I will do a little more digging right. into it. But the the one time I have had issues was you know simply when our internet went down for a day, and then you realize oh all of our TV is delivered over the internet, so guess what? There's no live TV for the, <laughs> the that period of time. But uh, man, it especially for something as quote unquote important as a playoff game. That's like the last moment you really want this to happen. And it's a shame that that content's only available on a quote unquote cable channel or a cable available channel only. It's not like, yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I, I hear you. Keep it in mind. Things do happen and it's unfortunate when they do, especially with an event that, you know, it's all about that live experience. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I've, I've, this this may be cruel, but you know the upside of the A's moving to Las Vegas is that if you ever watch them again, um, you should actually be able to get the games because they're no longer down the street <laughs> on MLB.com. <laughs> oh, I, I guarantee you that it'll still be blacked out here in the Bay Area. That for whatever reason, they'll, they'll include suddenly Vegas will become part of the West Coast since they're already in our time zone. They'll probably just lump us in with Hawaii and everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> whatever that team is so <laughs> we are so ready for them to move on it has been such a terrible wow. season already but that's a whole different story this is more about um, the uh, basketball playoffs and your ability to I watch still has a sad well i have a sad about the golden state warriors moving from oakland to san francisco so uh, and then there's the former football team associated with san francisco going to santa clara but I think this is a good time for us to start talking about uh, changes at Sonos. You were, you know, it, they're going to stop uh, local file playback on Android devices. Uh, if you're an iOS user, you lost this like three years ago. Essentially, means if you have Sonos files or if you have files stored on your phone, you can stream them to your Sonos. And uh, you know, three years ago, Apple basically said. You know, the way this feature was originally designed has become unreliable with newer versions of iOS and Sonos. And and I think more accurately, uh, they found that AirPlay made it kind of redundant. So why should they make all this effort to develop it? Um, what are you thinking about this? Because they're pulling they're finally pulling it out on Android now, too, right? Apparently that's going to happen. And if you can still use AirPlay 2 with Sonos products. It would be nice if there was the, you know, Android equivalent, apparently. However, maybe I'm one of the weirdos who used this feature regularly just because it was the, the convenience of it more than anything. I'm able to keep right. some lossless audio tracks that I use for testing in particular of Sonos products or just some of my favorite tracks. And it's like, oh, if I'm on a Sonos network somewhere, anywhere, I can just simply play those right from my phone directly in that perfect quality 
right over Wi-Fi. Yeah. That I'm going to miss a little bit. But, you know, considering Sonos in general is really, you get the full experience on the iOS platform compared to Android. This isn't really surprising to me. And apparently the transition to Android 14 is what's really prompting this. Apparently it becomes even more difficult to do what Sonos has been doing with this new transition. How accurate that is, I would love to see like a he said, she said from Google in response to that. Sure. But I'm not. Yeah, I doubt they're going to make any statement whatsoever. This is just simply what it's going to be. What this does remind me of, though, is that I really need to get a new NAS set up. NAS, uh, Network Attached Storage, in my home environment. I'm currently transitioning between a very old product and, a, and something new. And mm. I would like to get that done because Sonos and their wonderful app otherwise uh, does have wonderful support for network attached storage devices that you can share your audio on or keep your audio collection on. And that's something nice. I am going to be looking into a little bit more. I've tried doing something similar with like say storage connected directly to my router and then uh, i've had less luck though getting that to work compared to just having a network attached box on the network instead i think the challenge is is a lot of times the code that's on your your wi-fi router the processors tend to be weak the code tends to right be marginal at best um could in theory a real high priority for the developers. Yeah. Right. Exactly. If you have a fast enough router and they actually paid attention to the code, it can work. But more often than not, it's a complicated experience full of disappointments. I am thankful my router at least is still receiving security updates and patches and things like that. <laughs> and occasionally new features. That's good. They just added WireGuard service to my router, either as a server or a client, which is kind of nice if you mm. want to do the whole VPN style thing. Anyway. I'm VPNing to my house. Big fan I'm of the WireGuard. Yeah, if you want everything to be under the uh, umbrella of a <laughs> VPN. Many routers have that built in nowadays, and that's pretty cool. It's a good thing. I mean, you know, the upside of this is, hey, man, you know, you're being, you're, your Android device is being brought into parity, equality, with iOS. <laughs> it just happened to be doing it by removing a feature that you like. No, but at least <laughs> on iOS, though, you have AirPlay. And that works with Sonos, as far as I can tell. I mean, there is no... Yeah. And, and that is a feature over Wi-Fi, as far as I know. Yeah. Uh, well, so we were talking a while back. Where... I just don't get why it's so difficult on Android compared to iOS. But apparently, it's just difficult enough to where Sonos is going to mm -hmm. remove the feature because they don't want to pay a developer to work on this for the Android products out there. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I feel your pain. I have my uh, my old school iOS device in hand just for that very scenario and for doing true play tuning, which, of course, uh, if you want that feature, you need an iOS device anyway. <laughs> anyway. So a uh, guy named Yanko Rokers, uh, and uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly because I've been reading the man's work for quite a long time. He does a uh, newsletter called Low Pass, talks about the future of entertainment and hardware platforms, smart TVs, ambient computing, AR, VR, all that good stuff. Uh, what he found is a company called TV, um, which I'm going to say in the sing-songy voice that Freebie <laughs> comes uh, streaming somewhere in the dark corners of Amazon. So the deal is they're going to give away a 55-inch 4K HDR theater display with a free 4K Android TV dongle 
What's the catch? Where are they? <laughs> Obviously, they're making money on the viewers. I mean, are, are they going to be harvesting organs in the night? Are they showing advertisements or? Oh, no. You know. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> Beneath the 55-inch screen will be something that is effectively a decent sound bar. And then right below that will be a skinnier second display that will show you ads and ticker-style info, including sports, weather, news. Uh, it will likely use automatic content recognition to display context-relevant ads as well. Of course, there's going to be a built-in microphone and a camera for video calls and a motion sensor for waking huh. up when you're nearby. <laughs> and all of this, as long as you're willing to see, you know, related advertising on a dedicated display below the main display, uh, this will be a quote-unquote free TV experience. And yeah, there's a lot going on there that I personally have no interest in whatsoever, but... Still. <laughs> well, apparently, right, there's going to be, like, the screen, the second screen is going to supposed to be, like, a three or four inch bar runs the entire length of the bottom of the screen. And, is you know, we'll play relevant ads. We'll have widgets to get weather and other stuff. Uh, TV is going to be the, is in theory the operating name if they can secure all that stuff. I am curious about how well this is going to do. Um uh, well, you can sign up at freetelly.com yeah. if you want to get on the list for early access to this. And it's yeah, a, it just seems like a huge privacy. You're, you're giving up quite a bit in terms of monitoring of <laughs> what you do on the screen, maybe right. what's going on in the room, clearly. If the microphone being always enabled and maybe the camera as well is part of the terms of con and conditions of having this quote-unquote free right. TV... That is a big ask, and uh, it, it is definitely not for me. But maybe there are environments or places where it's like, you know what? I just want that. I want that free screen, 55-inch TV, which honestly, go price something that's labeled as 55-inch 4K HDR. And I think the pricing starts at about two or $300 for yeah. something in that category. So, Yeah. When you look at this, when you start digging into what's going on here, the founder, Ilya Posen, because it's a great, if you've never been to, to lowpass.cc, the newsletter by Yanko Rokers, go there, check it out. There's some good stuff there. But he's talking about, so the founder is Ilya Posen, who founded Pluto TV, which is a, a free online, you know, or free streaming service, right? Um, the list of people that are involved in this are pretty crazy, as I rapidly scroll past what I wanted to look at. So they've got a G4 president and CEO, Neil Ties, um, Vizio, former Vizio VP of product management, John Wang, former Vizio VP of software engineering, Eric Lowe's. Um, they have a bunch of other staffers apparently recruited from Vizio and Paramount and Pluto. And part of what's fantastic about this is, is uh, Yanko goes into some of the issues with making money on hardware, right? So, in Q4 2022, Vizio, the average gross profit on a smart TV sold by Vizio was under $3. You know, Vizio generated like $28.30 um, per user on, on their smart TVs through ads. 
and other, you know, fees they got in there. So it's like, there's, it's crazy to realize how thin the margins are on television. And right. we've, we've talked in the past extensively, like most television manufacturers do something in the background to monetize your use of the television. Um, Otherwise they're losing you know. money, literally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's rare yeah, to have something like an LG OLED, which is generally considered a more premium TV. They can make some money on those te- uh, TVs or, you know, the most expensive models within a particular company's lineup. Those generally are very profitable and the, the large screens. Mm-hmm. But when it gets into the anything, anything that's commodity yeah, televisions or just the value, the things that are the most value priced. It's like, wow, mm-hmm. what are the margins on these kind of devices? And where do they make that up? And yeah, it's that app experience, really, or some way of delivering advertising to you. And monitoring what you do. Interesting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lifestyle choice. It is. Um, Still, oh it, I'm curious. I'm, uh, who would put up with this in their home environment? Maybe for the free TV. Maybe you don't care. If you say covered up the camera or put a put a cloth over it, would that suddenly <laughs> turn the TV off? It was like, hey, I I need to be able to see the room. <laughs> Will it complain? I can't tell if you're watching. I Rob. really look forward to the Rob, reviews. Pay of this. attention to me, Rob. <laughs> exactly, Rob. We move the cloth. You, we know what you're doing, <laughs> Rob. You're being naughty. <laughs> oh, oh man. So I mean, the the founder, though, you know, the founder. Started Pluto TV, sold it to, I think, Paramount for $340 million. So he, he knows the market for people that want free stuff. So it will this will be an interesting experiment, and I suspect will generate a tremendous amount of outrage. Stay tuned for more. Um, moving in a radically different direction from a cost perspective, the Career Protection Central got hands-on with something I didn't think really existed a whole lot in the consumer world anymore a video processor the mad vr and the extreme mark ii delivers impressive image quality from a robust collection of features including state-of-the-art dynamic hdr tone mapping geometry correction sophisticated motion interpolation 8k scaling and so much more and i was like rob did you see this and you spotted something that i missed (laughs) yeah it's sixteen thousand dollars and it's the size of a personal computer. It literally is a personal computer, complete with right. NVIDIA class graphics hardware that is basically giving you an interface that allows you to do some pretty sophisticated stuff uh, in terms of being able to take your video sources and do things like right. frame-by-frame dynamic tone mapping for HDR, aspect ratio corrections, uh, black bar detections, stretching in a non-linear fashion, 1D and 3D LUT calibrations, uh, convergence correction. A lot of these features I thought were aimed more at somebody with a high-end projector, to be perfectly honest with you. And this is where you would want it because generally a lot of these features aren't built into most projectors. Uh, This is not something I could really see using with a, a premium television nowadays as a lot of premium TVs either don't need some of these features or they already have features like these kind of built in. And it's tough to say. Uh, right. I do recommend reading the review. It is well done. Rob Sabin did it uh, for Projector Central. And also take a look at the feedback at the end of the review. He actually does a nice write-up to one person who kind of questioned the whole concept. 
really. And he wrote a, a pretty lengthy screed, actually. <laughs> That's worth, uh, worth putting eyes on. And overall, it is impressive. But it is also very expensive comparatively. I mean, if right. you have sixteen grand, I'm assuming that you've got the audio setup ready to go. You've got a video setup. Maybe you're rolling with a fifty, hundred thousand dollar projector in the room, and this is just like, uh, you know, uh, it, it's it's very little considering everything else that's been spent. So it could provide a lot of convenience and ways of just making day-to-day -day use all the easier, especially when you're talking about dealing with different content types and different aspect ratios and different uh, things and getting them all to look good in a semi-automated way on a projection setup. Uh, however, yeah. it's again, it's, yeah, who is it for? For me, looking at this, it's for a pretty high-end setup and God, it, if you're spending a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars on a projection system in your million dollar home theater, this isn't exactly a rounding error, but it's going to fit in nicely. And nobody's going to complain too much about the price. Um, now, in that case, and I wouldn't be pairing this, you know, with <laughs> with the value TV per se, let alone something like the telly <laughs> we were just talking about, or even something like a high end OLED. Uh, those True. have very interesting and good video processing in general, and you don't need a lot of these features. But if you have a pretty impressive projector nowadays, uh, it is missing some features I would love to have, in particular things like dynamic tone mapping and having access to a 1D or a 3D lookup table calibration. 1D referring to grayscale correction and 3D referring to color correction. I thought those were actually built into it. Built into this box, that's what the Mad VR NV Extreme MK2 okay. is going to provide. But many projectors do not have that feature built in, uh, and that sorry, would I be nice you. to have uh, in terms of being able to do very detailed uh, grayscale and color correction, which would be pretty sweet. But again, is the price for entry worth it? it is, it's got to be more than just that. So, and if you take a look at the the features that this particular product offers. The Extreme MK2, uh, it, it has a lot going for it. And you could feed this, at least by the specs, pretty much any kind of content. Maybe occasionally you'll be rolling, you know, with some 4x3 <laughs> content or 16x9 content. Maybe you just want a box that can handle taking care of potential image issues with a, a raw display system like a high-end projector. And this could could be the all-in-one solution you've been looking for. But again, I, I thought the review was pretty good. It, it's definitely comprehensive in terms of the features available. Sure. And they give it their thumbs up most uh, emphatically on the Projector Central website. But again, that's <laughs> definitely falling into the premium category of, of home theater products I've seen recently. There you have it, people. Um, something I wanted to touch on this week is the concept of X-Max. It's something I touch upon fairly regularly on the podcast. And usually when I'm talking about woofers or subwoofers, if you go to Wikipedia, it's the amount of linear excursion the speaker is mechanically capable of, i.e. Uh, the distance the cone will travel fore and aft without jumping out of the magnet, <laughs> you know. Uh, you can subtract the thickness of the top plate from the height of the voice coil winding, uh, divide that by two uh, to get the X max. You can use laser cone excursion measurement tools after while you're running an acoustic signal in there. Uh, there's some argument over like X max versus, you know, the real world performance. But 
generally speaking, something that started happening, uh, you know, the last decade or two is instead of just looking at a subwoofer and going, if I give it a larger diameter, it'll play deeper, is the idea that I'm going to increase the forward and aft movement of the driver and that will you know that's increasing the x max and that will move more air for a given cone size so a 10 inch woofer with a greater x max is going to hit harder or play louder than one with a smaller x max it's one of the reasons for example why the sonos one is such a spectacular performer on the low end is it hitting 20 hertz no but it's pretty authoritative down to 50 hertz maybe a little lower and part of the reason they did that were capable of doing that with such a tiny speaker is by giving it a fairly hefty x max compared to what uh speakers traditionally had in the past. So I just wanted to touch on that, make sure we kind of clarified what that meant. Um, you're not going to run around and, and start comparing X-Max measurements across different speakers, or maybe you are, but it's just one thing you can look at to increase the performance for a given uh, cone size on a speaker. Nice. Yeah. Um, one of the things I uh, showed up was an announcement that Elite Screens is now doing portable ultra throw screens for bright rooms um the light on clr3 series uh like pretty much every ultra short throw specific screen they're doing light rejecting uh elite screens calls it ceiling light rejecting right because it's not rejecting light from the windows it's rejecting light from overhead uh fixtures in the room and uh so that's designed to make the picture wash out less if you happen to need to leave the ceiling lights on while you're using the projector. Um, they've got like a 55-inch version that mounts on a tripod, a 60-inch version uh, that has a folding frame. That 55-inch version is 4 by 3 which makes me laugh because I'm cruel. Uh, the 16-inch version is 16 by 9 So I thought it was interesting to see. I, I tend to think of portable projection screens as a sales tool, and it was interesting for me to have the idea that somebody's going to actually be running around with a portable screen and projector of the ultra short throw variety. But just wanted to touch on that. And you were actually uh, looking at one of the picks for the best overall ultra short throw UST screen out there. Where'd that one come from? That was from The Hookup on YouTube, actually. And I've mentioned this before, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but he did a wonderful roundup of ultra short through screen comparisons. And while it didn't include portable screens like that new Elite screen, uh, which I'm a fan of a portable screen, especially for just uh, occasional use, it's nice to be able to put it away quite easily or have it just available and to move it around uh, when need be. Right. Uh, however, he was talking about the lenticular or the Fresnel lens designs that are being used on some of the most impressive looking screens nowadays. Oh, wow. If you are thinking about one of these ultra short throw projectors for use in a room with some light, do take a look at that review. It goes through eight different screens for ambient light rejection, and it is just a good comparison overall. But the one that ended up being the best overall by a significant margin was that four-movie Fresnel 100-inch ALR screen. And just take a look at his presentation. He does a pretty good job of some side-by-side -side in addition to just showing the different options out there for this type of projection setup when you don't have a fully light-controlled room, and you need a screen that can help out in terms of making the picture look contrasted, bright, and punchy, even with some light in the room. It's a great overall review and something I was uh, pleased to nice. mention. 
Yeah. I'm also just kind of curious too about the Fresnel lens technology screens in general, but it seems like the way to go if you are thinking about this sort of a setup. There you have it. Take a brief moment. Actually, take a long moment. Take a moment. Let us say thank you. Rob and I are going to say thank you to everybody at patreon.com slash avxl. All of our patrons, all the folks that subscribe to the show, they get the show early as a result. They get uh, some hangouts and other things going up at patreon.com slash avxl. And we've been going through, we started kind of our very first subscriber, and we've been going through. We're in the June of 2018. And uh, Greg Leesk, Eric Webster, Randy Stanley, Charlie Ladd, Henry Clark, and Brian O'Sullivan, we want to thank you personally for being subscribers to AVXL. Your patronage makes the show possible, and we thank you for it. Keep an eye on patreon.com slash AVXL for a hangout this month and for some other treats. And if you've got a question for us, as always, you can post, you can message us on patreon.com slash AVXL, or if you prefer, email ask at AVXL.com or tweet at Robert Heron or at Patrick Norton. Uh, got a great viewer question, and... Uh, uh, also from New Zealand, this viewer question, Matt in New Zealand emailed in. It says, everyone seems to rave about dynamic HDR, Dolby Vision in particular. I have no doubt it looks good in 12-bit color, etc. is great in theory. But if a film cinematographer and colorist have made a conscious design to grade each scene within the context of the film, creating dark parts and light parts for thematic, emotional, narrative reasons, then isn't dynamic HDR at best weakening those choices by lifting or lowering all the high and low lights on a shot-by-shot basis to its own determined level? To put it another way, isn't it like listening to an orchestral piece of music with all the peaks normalized to zero dB and leveling out all the dynamic, loud, and quiet parts? I'm sure it's more subtle and complicated than that, but the question still stands cheers matt in new zealand um i love this question in part because it gets into the whole process of movie distribution and generally speaking uh hdr is not um you know it, it, it is it is not normalizing the video experience um one of the things that happens with hdr 10 plus or uh, dolby vision is that it allows you to more you it allows you to customize some of the color choices on a scene or brightness choices on a scene by scene basis but generally speaking my understanding is that you know the director the cinematographer um you know the dp of photography they are involved in the process of i'll call it mastering these these videos before they go out on blu-ray or elsewhere um you know that said the whole question about because we also had a question about like no could they make Blu-rays that are HDR from older films. And when you look at high quality, not bad, cheap 35 millimeter film stock, but but quality 35 millimeter film stock is, is already kind of HDR. It has a high dynamic range. Film can deliver 13 F-stops. Um, Rec. 709, standard definition television, which is what we've been using for years and years and years, has significantly limited bandwidth by comparison. It can deliver six F-stops. Um, to turn a phrase, you know, it was built for cathode ray tube displays with a 100 nit brightness and a fairly limited color gamut. So one way of looking at HDR is that it's restoring the ability that film has of carrying a whole lot of information, you know, in terms of the, the brightness or darkness of a scene that previous versions, previous specs were not able to do. Um, you know, when you're talking about what I 
<laughs> thoughtfully wrote as jank 35 millimeter film stock or the cheap stuff. Um, there's a really great uh, interview with some of the folks that worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And they pointed out that the reason some of their scenes are so brutally dark or have issues uh, is because when they initially started the show, they were given no budget. They bought the cheapest film they could buy, you know, the, the what was that, whatever was open box, on sale, left over, probably on the edge of its use-by date or well past it. Um, so some of the scenes were compromised because they were using just the worst film stock because it was the only stuff they could afford in the first year or two of the show. So generally speaking, though, um, HDR is supposed to be an extension of the artist's choice in, in how the film was shot and lit. Uh, and, you know, with older films... It may not be as direct because the original, you know, the original cinematographer and director are probably dead, right, for the oldest films. But there's a lot of things that HDR does that allows you to reproduce all the information that's contained in film stock that traditional Rec. 709 was not able to do. I mean, ideally, your TV or whatever display is you're looking at this HDR content would match or exceed the performance of the professional monitor that was used to grade the content. Right. However, the the spec for HDR and Dolby Vision goes up to 10,000 nits with BT2020 color, which is practically mm -hmm. laser-like primaries. And that is something no display can currently do. I remember early on with HDR TVs and content, I was like, oh, it's all code words. So if the TV is incapable <laughs> of displaying, say, 5,000 nits, then it simply would wash out or not display that information if the code word presented to it exceeded its performance. That lasted all of about, I think, two or three months before they said, you know, what we need to do is make it more realistic for the time and the place we are right now. Right. With these standards, Dolby's own guidelines for authoring this content, they specifically mention, are you using a 1,000 or a 2,000 or a 4,000 nit peak luminance monitor? Uh, then keep that in mind and author accordingly. Even today's pro monitors, it's rare to see somebody using a 4,000 nit peak display or a display capable of that peak luminance uh, when they're actually authoring it. Maybe for some video or for some movies nowadays, yes, it is authored at that level, but that's still not even the 10,000 nits of what the spec goes up to. With those limitations in mind, we are not going to simply clip the detail in all cases above that level if right. the display is incapable of doing it. And technically, it should offer a best fit mode that strikes that balance between the luminance and the detail. At least that's that's my opinion. It's like, I don't want right. a picture that's blown out for the reason. It's like, oh, if this display can't do that level appropriately, then we're just going to clip that detail and make it, you know, uh, just all blend is one, so to speak. And at least within the TVs I look at nowadays, at least uh, especially within, I know for a fact, with LG's OLEDs, they specifically have uh, something like 700, uh, 2,000, or 4,000 nit tables built into them. So it's like, oh, when we detect that the content was authored at this level, here's how we're going to adjust and present it accordingly on our particular display. And mm -hmm. at least they put the thought into it like that. I'm more of, I guess, a fan of how it is done today. It, it, it's like it gives you the option. Would you rather have a little extra light output and sacrifice some of that peak detail? Or would you rather 
tone it down a little bit across the board, but make those brightest details still have some of the detail in them, not just be, yeah. not just wash out in essence. And I'm always thinking when I, when I have these discussions in mind, I'm thinking specifically of something like a sunset where it's like, okay, how much of that sun do you actually want to see versus do you just want a bright light coming from that direction and it being pretty nondescript overall? Right. That is really up to the tone mapping of the display itself. I mean, swing swinging around you, you mentioning sunset made me think about something like, you know, when I say F-stops, which technically with cinema, it should be T-stops, but, you know, an F-stop or T-stop, essentially when you're talking about, you know, how big an aperture opening is, um, the higher the number in, in film, uh, the smaller, or for that matter, digital cameras, whatever, right? When you choose an F-stop, um, you're, you're making a number of choices. But when, you, when people are talking about those F-stops, as the number gets bigger, the aperture, the hole behind the lens that the light passes through gets smaller um, and as the number gets uh, smaller that aperture gets bigger and each of those stops is about a doubling of the light the amount of light that's hitting the lens and that impacts a bunch of things right when you open up the aperture when you when you make it really big the depth of field gets shallow um, you know if you stop down or close the aperture you get deeper depth of field so details in the back instead of being blurry are actually easier to see right the classic version of that is the scene in citizen kane where young kane is playing in the snow in a, in a window in the far distance while we still see pretty sharply the family in the foreground that are planted right in front of the lens to do deep focus like that you need a huge amount of light but essentially there's there's a bunch of decisions that are made you know and and this you know the amount of you know the idea that film does not contain huge amounts of light information you know it's just a bad assumption um i guess totally you know, hopefully matt you know things are preserved I, I can think of you know we talked about uh probably to death at this point for some of you that really dark episode of the game of thrones which you know if everything is is you know if your television isn't properly calibrated it's even darker if your television has the ability to manually you know reconfigure the hdr settings you might get a little more detail out but you're not going to get much detail because they intentionally somebody decided that we're going to make this night fight more realistic by making it really hard to see anything by not shooting with much light and so you know hopefully you know in the Artistic future intent. nobody sits down and yeah <laughs> you know and and that's you know HBO so far has done a really good job of preserving that artistic intent, much to the irritation of a lot of people squinting and trying to see things on the on on the film, you know, in their on their projection screen or on their television while they're watching it. So the good news here in this particular question and for yeah. for Matt is that there is nobody authoring content at ten thousand nits with BT twenty twenty color. Right. So what is happening, though, in the case of something like Netflix or, I mean, they often author their content for OLED-style displays that are doing like 700 to 1,000 nits. There are a lot yeah. of people authoring content at a 1,000-nit level, and there are a lot of TVs nowadays at even relatively affordable price points that can hit a 1,000 nits of light output, let alone if somebody's doing it at 2,000 nits or 4,000 nits. We are now seeing displays that can actually do that in the consumer space, which is wonderful. That means there is very little tone mapping afoot to get that to map appropriately to that display. And you are, you are seeing it very close to being as is. And it's in the cases yeah. where you don't have that, where your HDR TV is, say, a 500-nit display, and it's trying to display 
2,000 nit content, let alone 4,000 nit content, a little tone mapping is going to make that look better overall and, and to get it to fit within its performance envelope. So, yeah, ideally, we'd all have, be rolling with TVs that can do perfect black and can hit 10,000 nits and have BT2020 color, which is a very large color palette, but uh, something our eyes are capable of fully taking in. And until we do, uh, I think tone mapping is an appropriate way to do it, and it's a good compromise mm -hmm. at this point. But like I just said, though, there's a for the majority of the HDR content we're looking at, there are TVs out there that are fully capable of resolving all of that detail in a right. very nice way with minimal... Uh, with minimal shenanigans, so to speak, if you consider tone mapping to be a virtual or digital shenanigans with your video. <laughs> and in case I misstated earlier, as as the f-stop gets larger, as you go from like a f2.8 to an f22, um, you know, the higher that number is, the deeper the shallow, the the, the deeper the field is. You know, as you lower that number. Your field of view, well, not field of view. Essentially, your depth of field. You get everything in uh, outside of everything outside of what the object is you're focused on gets super super blurry. So, and I'm friends with someone who does conversions for a living of taking content that was originally on film and then going through it literally on a frame by frame basis and converting that to an HDR presentation. And that's something I'll run by them and see if I can get some feedback in terms of. Oh, please. Uh, some examples and what they feel about it. I, they make things look beautiful to me and they put a lot mm -hmm. of work into that kind of content. So uh, even the conversion process, be it more of an automated tone mapping function or somebody hand doing it, I'm almost curious then as to what their color grading display is. Uh, again, like I said, most of the monitors in use in, pr in pro production are in that 1,000 to occasionally the 4,000 nit monitors, but rare to ever see something greater than that. Sure. And quite frequently, I'm seeing a lot of people using something like an LG OLED in terms of doing color grading and <laughs> things like that. Or 1,000 nit displays are way more common than I thought they would be within a lot of video production. So, uh, they yeah. certainly got a lot more affordable in the last few years. That and the fact that oh, there man. are... Plenty of options out there for TVs that are fully capable of uh, actually yeah. resolving that kind of detail. And now we begin the long march to 10,000 nits. <laughs> yes. <sighs> oh, man. Michael emailed asked at avxl.com. I have a 16-inch MacBook Pro M1 Max and a Mac Mini M2 Pro. I thought I read somewhere that the 3.5-millimeter audio port on the 14- and 16-inch MacBook Pros were better than before. What does this mean? If I want to enjoy listening to music on my Macs using wired headphones, will these ports be good enough? Should I get a DAC and a headphone amplifier? Thanks, Michael. Um, you know, the short answer uh, is the headphone jack on your Mac should sound pretty good, and you probably don't need an outboard DAC and a headphone. The longer answer is it's a standard 3.5 millimeter headphone jack, but marketing speak says to go for, uh, they, they did a thing, right? And they call it a high impedance headphone jack. And what they mean is the amp they built into your Mac is more powerful when you need it because we know a lot of people are video editing on Macs and some of them have headphones that are, you know, pretty unusual. So when you plug headphones into these new Macs, 
quote, your Mac can detect the impedance of the connected device and will adapt its output for low and high impedance headphones as well as for line level audio devices. You know, so you connect headphones with an impedance of less than 150 ohms, which is the vast majority of headphones out there. Uh, the headphone jack provides, I think, 1.2.5 volts RMS. If your headphones have an impedance of 150 to 1,000 ohms, which are exceedingly rare, except in some production environments, the headphone jack gives a whopping 3 volts RMS. Quote, this may remove the need for an external headphone amplifier, end quote. That's Apple's words there. So um, this is like in all the MacBook Pros introduced starting in 2021, the MacBook Air and Mac Studio starting in 2022, Mac Minis introduced in 2023 all have this. So Michael, a Mac Mini M2 should be good to go for just about any headphone you plug into it. You know, one and a quarter volts is more than enough for the zillions of headphones and earbuds that are like 30 ohm. Uh, three volts is a lot of energy when you're heading it, setting it into something that is strapped to your ears or stuffed inside of your ears. There could be issues with some planar magnetics that they require a lot of power, but have the, they measure at a low impedance, but they still require a lot of power to drive them to their full potential. Uh, Hi-Fi Man's HE6 is a particularly good example. They're 50 ohm headphones, um, but they need all of 1.25 volts to hit 94 dB. Not that I think you should be listening that high for extended periods, but I think that one of the, 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 the notes somebody put on their measurements for Dan Clark's Aon RT, they said they need a lot of current. Um, they measure at 13 ohms, which is very low impedance. That's, you know, that's down there with any inexpensive headphone that's sold for use on portable devices or the earbuds that came in your headphone box or, or your phone box back when phone boxes still had earbuds inside of them. Um, but that same 13 ohm headphone from Dan Clark needed 677 millivolts to hit 94 dB, which is a lot of voltage. Um, so, you know, that's under a volt, but still... You know, Sony MDR was like a 101 millivolts to hit the same volume. So the amount of voltage you have to throw at different headphones is different for different reasons. And again, the vast majority of the headphones you plug into your Mac should should work just right. Um, you know, for most headphones, even say a 250-ohm DT770, that's a biodynamic headphone, they're, they're an unusual company. They have, you know, a couple of models where they have different versions of the headphone you know like 60 ohm 250 ohm 600 ohm um you know any of those should play loud enough to damage your hearing if you really want to turn it up that loud you know if you have a laptop with poorly engineered headphone jack if it's noisy if it doesn't seem to sound right if there are you know playback issues in terms of it if it distorts if your headphones don't distort and everything else you listen but they distort when you turn the volume up on your laptop that's a great time to start looking at an outboard DAC uh, and a headphone amplifier you know for portability uh, I'd recommend a DAC headphone amp combo uh, Apple's $9 lightning or USB dongle those are incredibly solid devices for the money um, Fios K1 USB DAC that starts around $55 should be good not the most powerful out there Linsoles E1DA 9038 uh, it's available for anywhere from $100 to $130 is a great option THX's Onyx it's a fantastic device that can power just about anything um, that's $200 it's going to be you know that's one of those devices where if you plug your headphones into it you're probably going to use like three bars of your volume control 
uh, <laughs> right. you know, to go from barely listenable to ouch, uh, because it's so powerful, uh, C entrance or CE entrance, uh, their DAC port HD, uh, can power the stuff. The Onyx can't, which is a short list. That's also around $200. And I gotta be honest with you. There's a lot of great Bluetooth headphones, especially from Sony, uh, that deliver excellent audio with a little EQing and, uh, Active noise cancellation headphones make the flight a lot more tolerable. But essentially, um, those outside of the audiophile community, which does things for reasons that we don't need to get into, sometimes they're legit, sometimes they're based on fantasy. Um, you know, those biodynamics, for example, the these super high ohm headphones were eventually were, were they were invented because you had professional audio people that were plugging into, you know, production equipment that delivered voltage that could permanently damage their hearing so essentially they created headphones that were resistant <laughs> headphones with built-in resistors uh to oversimplify and maybe you know uh not the most accurate answer but essentially they were designed to work with super powerful professional production gear back in the day um, not as big a requirement anymore we had a question from Brian. He was asking about powered speakers last week. I also wanted to say, like, his his monoprice, that uh, SSW10, is a pretty slick device and fits under a couch or in a corner. It's a low-profile, kind of flat subwoofer design. Uh, it does a really good job at bringing out the low end on smaller speakers. Given his budget, it might be a good time to think about upgrading a subwoofer to Speedwoofer, the 10s Mark II from RSL Speakers, is fantastic. Uh, SVS, Shoe, and Monoprice all make excellent quality subwoofers that won't break the bank and will round out the bottom end in your desktop speakers quite nicely. And uh, the crew over at the Wirecutter also have a nice roundup talking about subwoofers, what you can expect from them, and their pick for the best value and performance for kind of an audiophile grade subwoofer on there. Oh, yeah. So, worth taking a look at. Gotta love the bass, baby. Uh, Oh, my goodness. If you got a question for us, do us a favor. Email ask at avxcel.com or tweet at Robert Herod, at Patrick Norton, or at avxcel. And uh, with that, ladies and gentlemen, do us a favor. Send your questions in. We're always looking to hear from you and hear what you're interested in. Guide the program. Guide us. Help us help you. We're here for you, people. And with that, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Herod. We'll catch you next week on AVXL. <laughs>